Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I know I'm doing great because this week we're talking about Trillium and Trillium diversity. I don't need to sell most of you on how incredible the genus Trillium can be, but for those that don't get to experience them each spring, they are a wonderful group of plants that produce these wonderful trifoliate leaflets and absolutely stunning floral displays. But when you look at the number of trilliums and their distribution, you realize there's disparities. Not all species are distributed equally. Some are extremely common throughout North America, whereas others are extremely endemic and restricted to only a very small area of the continent. And my guest this week has spent a lot of her research career trying to understand how and why these patterns exist. Joining us is Dr. Chelsea Miller, who has spent a lot of time looking at species distribution modeling and seed dispersal among trilliums to try to understand why some species are super common and other species are super rare. This research is extremely interesting and has answered a lot of questions that I have had just observing the myriad trillium species I've gotten to interact with over the years. So I don't want to keep you from that any longer. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Chelsea Miller. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Chelsea Miller, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. But first, let's start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hi, it's uh, wonderful to be invited. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, my name is Chelsea Miller. I recently graduated with my PhD from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville uh, in their EEB department. So I'm an ecologist. Um, First and foremost, I'm not a botanist. and I'm not an entomologist, although many people think that that's what I do. Uh, I study plant-insect interaction, so um, I'm in both of those worlds, but uh, yeah, I I definitely uh, don't know all about taxonomy of plants or insects, um, only really the the organisms that I work with. But a little bit about my background, I grew up in northern Illinois uh, in the middle of the cornfield, so it was very agricultural, not a lot of what I would consider to be nature available to me um, in my backyard, for example. And as a child, you don't have the option to hop into your car and drive wherever you want to go. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was I was really reduced to playing in the little patch of woods that was by my house. And I, it was very safe uh, and comfortable, but I really didn't love growing up there. Um, and so I went to Central Arkansas for my undergraduate degree. That's where my parents uh, went to school. And they have a really great honors program there that I got into. So I had a, an awesome time in Arkansas. I loved it. And Arkansas is the opposite of Illinois. It's very wild and natural, at least the northern half of it in the Ozarks. And that, that's where I spent most of my time. I just played in the woods and I climbed rocks and I, you know, floated the buffalo, uh, which is a gorgeous uh, natural scenic river. And I just did a ton of field work. So that's kind of where I got my, my start in biology was very 
on the ground, you know, it's a good old Southern boy kind of research. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's how I got started um, and, and really where my, um, my research began. That's awesome. And you know, you mentioned you're an ecologist, and this is something I kind of deal with in my own life, is you go into ecology, and for some reason, people just hear plants or they hear animals, and they kind of want to bin you into that, but it's really the study of interactions. And so, you know, it's obvious you love nature growing up and, like, being immersed in it, but where did that sort of connection between, you know, not wanting to go with a specific study system or organism and saying, no, I'm more interested in how these things are interacting come to be? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't think it started there. I think like a a lot of of children, especially little girls growing up in the 90s, I wanted to be a a marine biologist. (laughs) You know, you love, I love manatees. That was my thing. (laughs) But I was in the middle of Illinois, which is, I had never even been to the ocean before. So, you know, recognizing that dream was a little bit of a a far shot for me. Um, And so when I went to Arkansas, I really started in the freshwater fishes. Actually, that's where I began. And that was really fun. And then I sort of transitioned into a paid position as a lab tech in a macroinvertebrate lab, an aquatic macroinvertebrate lab. So uh, that's where I started working with insects for the first time. Um, and so I was, you know, flipping rocks and streams and seeing what was uh, on the bottom of the rocks. And everybody loves um, fr- freshwater macroinvertebrates. Mm-hmm. Kind of how everybody gets into entomology. And yeah, that's that's really where I spent most of my time as an undergrad was in those two systems. So so fish and insects in the water, and uh, we were obviously studying a bit the interactions there, um, you know, predator-prey interactions and whatnot. And so that's really where I started thinking about, you know, using species as measures of ecosystem health, as measures of ecosystem connectivity. And it's like you can't think about one part of that without thinking about it as a whole. Um, and so I think that when I got out of my undergraduate degree, I, I had this framework in mind of nothing works in a vacuum, nothing is really even that interesting in a vacuum. You know, I always wanted to think about how do things interact with each other and how does the health or peril of one organism impact things um, literally up and downstream <laughs> and figuratively. <laughs> and then thinking about that, you know, from the perspective of mutualists, antagonists, you know, was really fascinating to me. Hmm. So when I went to grad school, I well, I had a I had a year off, I guess, in between undergrad and grad school, and I worked uh, as a natural resources manager at a military base in Arkansas, and that's about as uh, good, good old boys as you can possibly yeah. get. So it wasn't really science <laughs> in in the strictest sense. So I felt unfulfilled in that world. I wanted to do much more rigorous science, question based science. But it did teach me a lot about values of, of managers, the values of stakeholders, and that's actually benefiting me in my current position. Uh, but I kind of took a left turn after that. I got a, a position as a waterbird intern uh, working on the eastern shore of Virginia in the Delmarva Peninsula, and that was amazing. So we were studying the summer migration sort of patterns and, and population demography of uh, water and wading birds. And so I fell in love with birds had always been interested in them, but that was the first and only time really that I've been able to actually work with them. So I went to grad school hoping to work with a paleoornithologist, which was a major turn from wow. my 
previous <laughs> research. Um, and she actually agreed to mentor me, and I got into the program. And then before I arrived, she left. She took another position. No, I know it was so upsetting. So then I was, you know, I was still in the in the program, but I had to find a new advisor. And one of the available options was the person who ended up being my PhD advisor, and that was uh, Dr. Charlie Quit at UT. He is joint appointed with ecology and evolutionary biology and the um, forestry department. So. Uh, he was giving me this nice ability, I think, to keep my foot in the door for management and, and you know, natural history, natural resources, those kinds of things that I was still interested in. Uh, but also I was in the EEB department, so mm. I could be so much more rigorous scientifically. And uh, he happened to be very interested in insects and plants and particularly ants and seed dispersal. And so that's how I ended up getting into my research topic for my dissertation, uh, which was ant-mediated seed dispersal and what that means for the, the population demography and, and species distributions of the plant in, in question. That is awesome. I love hearing those sort yeah. of circuitous routes that are, you know, driven by passion, but largely kind of happenstance. What what kind of comes your way, you just have to deal with it and adjust accordingly. But it ends up, you know, throwing you down this amazing path with some really fascinating stuff. But I also love that combination of having that background in resource management, land management, but also doing the rigorous science. I think that's kind of a rare combination for a lot of people because you just kind of get early on binned into one or the other. Uh, but those two skills really complement each other. And I think that's kind of our way forward in a lot of these uh, issues we're facing, uh, ecologically speaking. Absolutely. And, you know, I, everybody, you know, talks about when you graduate, you know, what is the product you're selling as a researcher? Which I hate thinking about, you know, research as a product or a commodity. But, you know, I did get some thoughts to like, you know, how do I sell myself to an employer? And what I really do want to um, bring forward into my career is, is bridging that gap between management and, and science. Um, because, unfortunately, Although this is a topic discussed, I feel like, all the time, it is still a huge disconnect, really, in those two worlds. And, you know, coming from a PhD program that was very, very theoretical, very rigorous, very scientific, into my current postdoc, which is much more management, much more um, stakeholder-driven, it has been a challenge. And it's really the perfect first postdoc for me because it's allowing me to sort of re-engage with that world of, um, of resource management and, and forestry and, um, you know, forest health and things like that from this very unique perspective of really just classic ecology. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people that I work with now are always like, boy, you think about, you know, scientific questions and experimental design in such a different way than we do. And I'm like, yeah, because I was not trained as a forester. I was trained as an ecologist. But that's, I always try to remind them that's why you hired me <laughs> to get this new <laughs> Good to do. Good to do. <laughs> uh, that's great, though. And I mean, that's it's really rewarding to see someone with the talent and skills necessary to be going that direction. And, and again, not siloing yourself and, you know, however you want to push it, you're pitching yourself in a very unique position. But regardless... These ant plant interactions are among my favorite and there are a ton of them. I mean, I, I think ants are doing amazing things and plants are doing amazing things and together they're doing even more amazing things. So what better route to go as an ecologist? Uh, because a lot of these organisms really depend on one another, you know, to some degree more than the other. But 
Uh, your system in particular involves some of the most charismatic plants uh, in North America. Well, actually, they're all over the world. But, you know, here in North America, they, they are rock star status among forest flora, the trilliums. And that to me is like getting to work with those must have been like, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, that's so funny you mentioned that because I had no idea. I didn't know anything about plants when I started <laughs> the program. I had that was the one like group of organisms that I'd never worked with as a <laughs> as an undergrad, as you know, a postgrad, but before grad school. You know, I'd worked with a lot of other animals. I'd worked with insects, but I had never actually worked with plants. I'd never studied plants formally. I never even took a course in botany as an undergrad. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I took a plant taxonomy course, but uh, it was interesting because I got thrown into a, as a botany TA in grad school and I knew nothing about botany. Whoops. So I had to like learn as I was teaching. But yeah, so, you know, my advisor was like, you know, I'm interested in trillium and I didn't know what trillium were. I had no <laughs> idea. I was like, what is, what is that? Is that a tree? Is that, you know, what is that? <laughs> so, um, so I quickly realized what it was and uh, yeah, I was thrilled. I mean, they're gorgeous. They're, they're so beautiful. But it really wasn't until I guess maybe the first the first small grant that I got as a graduate student, which was the Garden Club of America. Um, it was a grant from them that I realized how beloved uh, Trillium are as a, as a genus. And then you know going to the the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is where I did my first year of field work as a graduate student, and seeing the tourists that are coming to photograph Trillium to see Trillium you know, specifically in the middle of these gorgeous biodiverse forests, that's their number one thing they want to see. It's amazing. Um, And it's also a nightmare if you're a researcher because you're being scrutinized by the public. You're like, what are you doing? Why are you messing with these plants? You know, um, and thankfully I was just flagging, flowering trillium at the time. I wasn't actually doing anything with them. So they were, you know, they were tiny. But yeah, it, it was really eye-opening and shocking, and I didn't realize just how popular, I guess, that group of plants was until I started working with them. Oh, that's that's funny, but also really exciting because it's a PhD. You're thrown into a system that you have to really get to know, and so all of it being kind of new, if you're curious and, and passionate about nature and natural history and ecological interactions, I mean, that learning curve, you know, kind of sucks when you're in the grind, but also really exciting because you're just, everything else is new. Everything, you know, newspaper you read is something new to add to this story of this, this genus. Absolutely. And, you know, I quickly read, I don't want to say quickly, I would say within two years or so, I read almost all of the, the well-known literature on Trillium. And I realized like really how much we don't know about Trillium, even obvious things about their life history, like pollination. We don't know hardly anything about trillium pollination. And of course, it depends on the species. It's not necessarily the same for all of, you know, the individual species in the genus. But for a long time, people thought maybe they were self-pollinated or, you know, self-compatible. And, and now there's evidence that they're, they're mostly not, uh, as, as far as we know. But it's just not like a, it's not an obvious pollination mechanism. We do see bees pollinating certain species. We see flies pollinating certain species. But I don't really think there's been that many formal studies of pollination in Trillium, which to me is strange because people, I think, tend to think about pollination before they think about seed dispersal. Yeah. And that's not the case for Trillium. I think because of the big seeds, the obvious elizomes, and you know the fact that, that this ant-seed interaction has been well known for over a century in in this genus of plants people think about seed dispersal with trillium more so than pollination 
Um, so, you know, if I, if I could continue working with Trillium, I think I would branch off into pollination systems and, and sort of quantifying, like, what are those pollination networks? What do they consist of? How do they differ among species? How do they differ among ranges? You know, because I think for as far as the dispersal systems for ants go, it's not really all that diverse. I mean, there's definitely a lot of species that do, to, you know, disperse seeds. But by and large, in North America, at least, it's a phenogaster. That's the main genus of ant that does the seed dispersal, at least for Trillium. And so I feel like we do know a little bit more about, about that than we know about some of the, uh, I guess, more popular uh, <laughs> species interactions in other taxa. Um, but yeah, so, so uh, yeah, I had read most of the literature and I was like, wow, people love these plants, but we don't know all that much about them. And so it was a great, it was a great area to be working in. Wow. That's really illuminating. Uh, I'm actually pretty surprised because unless you're working in it from a scientific perspective, you just kind of get the more popular literature. Like even if you're reading papers, it's like a one liner like, oh, this is pollinated by this. But yeah, pollination studies are tough. You got to be patient. You got to watch. You got to look at sort of the effectiveness of it. And that can be kind of difficult, especially, you know, you're lucky enough to work in an area where trillium can be pretty abundant. But, you know, where I grew up, populations are few and far between, which is another issue entirely. And so things like that can really complicate it. But, you know, it's also in complete disproportion to the amount of attention we pay pollinators. I think there's a lot of things that get tossed around as assumptions or just basic, well, this was on it. So therefore, uh, without really quantifying that, and that's, I mean, from an ecological perspective, kind of an important component of what's going on with these plants. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that you're completely right about that. You know, people, they see an insect on a flower and they're like, oh, it's pollinating. And, and I, it's not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, it could have just landed there and it's taken a break or, you know, it could be a, a nectar robber or it could be stuck in a spider web. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that it could be there. And so you do rigorous sort of hypothesis driven tests of pollinator networks and, and pollinator effectiveness and things like that. You don't really know. And, and there have been studies done in Trillium on, you know, whether they're pollen limited or, you know, seed limited and things like that. But I was shocked, I guess, to find relatively few studies that had actually quantified the pollinator networks. And so what, what are the organisms actually participating in that mutualism? And I mean, again, I wasn't studying it for my dissertation, so I didn't spend a huge amount of time on it. But I was, I was never really um, satisfied with the answers <laughs> that I found in the literature. So... I think if I, you know, continue to work with Trillium, sure. that would be the, the, the avenue I would go down. But Awesome. Well, I mean, again, it's a, an important component, but you study the other side of the reproductive game. What happens after these have been successfully pollinated and matured? And you kind of hinted at it uh, with the this idea of the elizome and the ants. There's a connection there. And a brief overview, I mean, for those that don't realize... Ants are vital to the seed dispersal of, I'm guessing, all trillium or most trillium in the woods? Yeah, that's right. So um, as far as we know, all trillium are myrmecorus, so they're ant seed dispersed. Um, and that's evidenced by the occurrence, I guess, of elizomes on their seeds. So elizomes are, for those that don't know, they are seed coat appendages that are mostly comprised of fat. They are oily uh, and large on most trillium. So trillium seeds are relatively large too and often brightly colored. So, you know, yellow, they, as they're mature, they become more brown. 
and neolysum is kind of bright white. And so it's, it's fairly obvious to see these things, but with the naked eye. And I think that's one of the reasons that trillium specifically have always been associated with ant seed dispersal because a lot of other plants utilize ant seed dispersal, but their elysums might be much smaller or sometimes they're clear or hmm. uh, not as obvious uh, to the naked eye. And so one of the studies that I did that I can talk about in more detail is like actually watching ant seed dispersal happen in situ. And so, you know, watching these yellow seeds bobbing along on the forest floor, they're relatively easy to see in terms of seeds. And so I think that's one of the reasons that, yeah, people have always kind of thought about trillium and ant seed dispersal because it's just such an obvious adaptation to attract ants and, and, and to get them to disperse the seeds. So yes, all trilliums, as far as we know, do partake in this dispersal mechanism, whether that's their primary dispersal mechanism or not, I think is a little bit more up for debate. But I think most of the North American species do utilize it as their primary dispersal mechanism. But I'd also love to talk about secondary dispersal. Sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, we can get into that. I, can, I was imagining, I guess, framing this conversation, sort of my three dissertation chapters that focus on dispersal and trillium, they kind of nicely outline my thought process as I was learning more about the system and asking um, sort of more nuanced questions. And I think that's a good way to approach seed dispersal in this genus because it starts with the most sort of simple questions and moves on to more complicated things. So. Sure. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So I'll let you take the reins on this. I mean, you know, having read over some of your work, it's it, it's opening things that I even, ha- you know, I haven't thought about is just how much seed dispersal can affect, you know, endemism and distribution rates and niche modeling and that kind of thing. But, you know, you've got the amazing fortune of working in an area with a bunch of trillium, both widespread species and endemics. And I mean, if people have not been to Southern Appalachia during the spring and seen it, you just you can't fathom it because there's there's few places in the world that just put on such an amazing show for trillium. But uh, yeah, let's let's start at the beginning. What was chapter one all about for you? Yeah, and I do want to plug the Southern Appalachia for all the reasons. I mean, so biodiverse, so beautiful. If you haven't been there, please take a trip some great hikes, some like rough terrain, you know, small mountains, but old mountains. I mean, it's just amazing. It's, it's one of the best places in the world for salamander diversity. I mean, it's, I love it. I love the Southern Appalachian. So I have to gush about this for a second. <laughs> <laughs> and Agreed. I didn't know anything about them until I got to grad school. So where did I start? I started um, with this sort of simple question that my dissertation advisor sort of steered me towards, which was, we know that there are these very, very range-restricted endemic species of trillium in the Southern Appalachian, and oftentimes they co-occur literally next to each other, growing in the exact same spot with much more widespread species. And the question, of course, is why? Why, why are these species that are so similar in terms of life history, in terms of taxonomy? There's, you know, often sometimes they're sister species. They're very closely related. Hmm. Why is it that one of them is so endemic and the other one is not. And my advisor was really interested in questions about dispersal. How do plants get out of a place that they're stuck in? Because they're, as adult organisms, they're sessile. They can't move. They can't, you know, pick up their roots and walk somewhere. So how do they move? How do they get to new places? And because trillium are well known to be ant dispersed and because of these endemic and widespread congeners, you know, located in the same site, uh, it was a nice system to ask that question. So, yeah, how I basically approached it was <laughs> very simple. You know, study design, I picked 
sites that had the same endemic and common species growing right next to each other. So replicated sites across the southern Appalachians, and I did that for three species pairs, each consisting of one endemic and one widespread species. And I just went and watched seed dispersal happen. Wow. So I would go, so I went in the spring and I flagged the plants when they were flowering because they are much harder to see when they lose their flowers <laughs> and uh, all the rest of the understory has grown up around them. And so then in the summer, I went back and about two weeks or one week before natural seed dehiscence, I would open up the fruit and put the seeds on the forest floor. And, um, you know, I'd count the number of seeds that the plant had produced. And then I set a timer and for an hour, I would watch the plant and I would take data on whether ants visited it. I would take voucher specimens to see which ants were visiting. And then I would count the number of seeds that the ants dispersed out of the total number available. And I would also watch the ants move seeds and hopefully try to find their final nesting location. So then I would take linear dispersal distances when I could do that. It wasn't always possible. You know, sometimes you just lose track of an ant in the, in the, in the leaf litter. So I did that for two summers. That's what I did. Wow. I sat in the woods and I watched ants and I had a lot of time to think about the questions that I was asking and the systems that I was working in. I got really familiar with like, what does it look like to be a trillium? Like you're just sitting on the forest floor and you're waiting for ants to come and like, you know, so I feel like I, that was so valuable. And mm. I, every time I talk to new grad students, I'm like, don't ever think that a quote unquote simple natural history project is not worth your time because it is it always is you, you know it's it's so hard to get to know a system if you don't go out there and spend time in the system with the plants with the insects with whatever you're working with if possible and and so i i really value those memories and that time i read a lot of books i you know, <laughs> spent a lot of time just sweating in the <laughs> hot sun <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah so that study was really interesting and i ended up finding that um the widespread species in all three pairs consistently did have significantly greater rates of seed dispersal by ants than their endemic congeners. And I did not find differences in dispersal distances among those species. So we weren't really seeing, you know, potentially longer seed dispersal distances for the widespread species. Uh, but we were seeing just more seed dispersal for those guys than for the endemic congeners. And so that was kind of that study. We also did some uh, laboratory experiments where we kept captive colonies of Athenogaster picea, and we did some preference experiments with, with the seeds of these congeners in the lab. And we found that they preferentially dispersed the widespread seeds, even when they were presented in a very homogenous way, hmm. you know, right next to each other on a seed grid. And uh, yeah, they, they just liked the widespread seeds a lot better, and they, and they tended to disperse them more often. And so that was pretty much that first study was just this wow. simple kind of, you know, what is going on in these systems. And so from there, I really got much more interested in seed chemistry because ants are chemical creatures. They navigate the world through chemistry. Uh, everything is chemistry for an ant. Um, <laughs> and there is some mechanistic things that go on as well. There's some data about uh, the gape width of an ant and, and what sizes of seeds they're capable of carrying and uh, there are upper, upper limits on that. Um, and so I wanted to take some basic sort of morphological metrics as well. So for my second chapter, I collected a bunch of seeds from the congeners that I had been working with, uh, the same populations, and brought them to the lab. And yeah, I just kind of did some morphological comparisons. And then I used 
uh, both gas and liquid chromatography mass spectrometry to look at fatty acid contents of the seeds and to look at the broader, really, elizome phytochemical profile, uh, which really nobody had done. People had looked at fatty acids before. Uh, specifically, oleic acid is considered to be really, really important for ant seed dispersal. Hmm. That goes all the way back to E.O. Wilson in the 50s. He was doing you know, experiments with supplementing oleic acid and seeing what behaviors that induced in ants. So I kind of used inspiration from E.O. Wilson to sort of come up with these experiments where I would treat seeds with um, oleic acid and then see if that impacted preference. And um, um, I can't exactly remember why we didn't publish the preference study. I think we didn't figure out exactly how the best method of supplementing the seeds was. <laughs> it but, happens. You know, it, it's, I like still talking about failed experiments. Sure. Even, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and so basically what we found there was uh, that those widespread seeds tended to have significantly higher concentrations of all fatty acids detected as well as key fatty acids to the mutualism. So, yeah, oleic acid, linoleic acid, I think palmitoleic acid was another one that we were focused on, stearic acid. And so we know that ants are keying in on those things both potentially as signals to move the seeds around and as you know, nutritious rewards uh, for the seed or for the for the ant brood. I mean, and um, phytochemical profiles in general were very different amongst mm. widespread and endemic species. And we intended to see the widespread species grouped much more closely together in multivariate space in terms of their phytochemical profiles than the endemic species, which were all really different from each other and from their widespread congeners. So we're just seeing more unique chemistry and the endemic species than we are in the widespread ones. And so sort of how I interpreted that was perhaps these ants are keying in on what they know. And if what they know are these widespread phytochemical profiles, they're more likely to disperse those seeds than, than the, you know, the endemic species that they're just not recognizing. And or, you know, there could be differences in nutritional quality, um, mm. which is not something I pursued for my dissertation. But that would be another natural extension, I think. Um, and other people have looked at that as well, you know, uh, nest survival rates and things like that based on elizone diets. Um, so there is some data on that out there. But yeah, so that was that was my delve into um, seed chemistry, looking at things on this very sort of molecular level. And then from there, sorry to just talking. <laughs> have at it. No, this is amazing. I love sort of the linear storyline you, you're able to tell with this. So please. Yeah. By all um, means. Yeah. So, you know, now I'm four years and in my next couple of years were spent all thinking about getting back to the first question really that I had, which was why are the endemic species endemic and why are the widespread species found some of them from mid to North Canada all the way down to the south of the U.S., you know, that huge, huge discrepancies and ranges for some of these species. And so I turned to niche modeling um, because that's kind of one of the best tools that we have for evaluating what factors are important in terms of uh, dictating species distributions. And um, thankfully, I had a really great collaborator, a new hire in our department, uh, Mona Papesh, who is a uh, um, Townsend's uh, student. So, you know, she's like a She's what I would consider an SDM queen. Uh, <laughs> she's amazing and so helpful in, in teaching me the skills that I needed to be able to pull this study off. I was not confident in the kind of 
modeling at all. And uh, yeah, we, we made it happen. And it recently, this project got published like less mm-hmm. than a month ago. So I'm really excited. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. So basically this project was we took occurrence data for 21 species of trillium that are native to North America, about half of which were relatively widespread and the other half of which were relatively range restricted, if not endemic. And um, we just took publicly available occurrence data. We put it into Maxent distribution models with not the typical 19 bioclim variables. We use the North America climate data set. Uh, I think it's 27 variables, but essentially we just created, you know, typical abiotic uh, ecological niche models for those 21 species. And so what that did was produce predicted or potential distributions for each species in question based on climate suitability, essentially. And so now we kind of had what we consider to be an estimate of really the fundamental niche. If you think about, you know, fundamental versus realized niche, we were looking at where should these species be able to occur based only on climate. So we had those potential distributions for every species. And then what we did is we took the known range of each species, which was just a essentially a convex hull, uh, including all of the known occurrences of these species. And we overlaid that. And so that was what we considered to be the realized distribution. That's where they actually occur, right? That's where they are capable of growing. That's where we know them to be. And we do have Trillium experts. I had a Trillium expert as a co-author, Edward Schilling. He's a professor in EED at UT. And then his ex-student, he's now a, a researcher at the Missouri Botanical Garden, Aaron Floden. He's really a trillium being. I mean, he would be my go-to person. He knows everything about them. We had those to check our distributions and make sure that we weren't missing things or, you know, they weren't inaccurate as far as they knew. And so then we were able to sort of calculate the proportional occupancy of that fundamental niche based on the known distributions and the, in the predicted distributions. We had this what we, you know, we termed it the, the PO value. So it was a, just a percentage of the fundamental niche that these species occupied based on our model. And then what we did is we took a set of reproductive life history traits, uh, which we got from an O'Hara uh, 1980s data set on Trillium. <laughs> um, and it wasn't for all of our species. I think it was 19 out of the 21. So we were missing a couple, but yeah. Things like ovule number and seed mass and seed setting rate and biomass and things like that. And we used some sort of regression models to uh, determine if any of those reproductive life history traits were significant predictors of of that PO value. And what we found was that um, flower type was the most important thing. And so this gets a little bit into trillium taxonomy. Uh, Trillium are split into two main groups based on the positioning of their flowers. And that's either pedicillate, so they're raised up on a pedestal, or they're sessile, which means that there is no pedestal. And there's a taxonomic distinction in the sense that the sessile trillium are a monophyletic clade, Mm. a subgenus sicilium. The pedicillate species are not a monophyletic clade. They are tentatively placed in a subgenus which is just trillium, so it's trillium, trillium, but they're not monophyletic. So there's still work that needs to be done there. Huh. But we do know that there is this important taxonomic distinction for the Sicilium, and that ended up being really, really important in predicting uh, whether or not they were occupying their you know, distribution, at least half of their distribution or not. 
And so what we found was that the pedicillate species tended to do a better job of filling that fundamental niche than wow. the vessel species. And correspondingly, and this is not a blanket statement, but most of the endemic species in the South, at least, are sessile. And the, the more widespread ones tend to be pedicillate. There are exceptions to that rule. But we were able to kind of tie that to rates of endemism and also to conservation status, looking at nature serves, you know, conservation ranks. So we kind of found that flower type was a really important predictor of their ability to fill their fundamental niche. And then, of course, that brings us around to seed dispersal. We know, I kind of found out halfway through my dissertation, that ant seed dispersal can never account for the large distributions of these, like trillium granifolium is like, I mean, it's a huge distribution. There's no way that ants could ever have gotten them all the way up into Canada after the <laughs> last glaciation. Right. So we know that stochastic long distance dispersal is really, really important for those to explain, you know, the ranges of those species. So we've got deer potentially doing that. We know that some of these species are dispersed by yellow jackets intermittently. Hmm. Those are also intermittent distances because, again, they're insects, but they can go a lot farther than ants, but not nearly as far as deer. And so we think that long distance dispersal is probably more likely for the widespread species. Something about them potentially uh, enables them to obtain long distance dispersal more easily or more often than those endemic species. And we think maybe the pedestal has something to do with that. It raises that flower up in the air a little bit, makes it a little bit more obvious to deer perhaps. Hmm. And then the modeling of the sessile species, that their leaves are modeled, unlike the pedicillate ones, that might camouflage them a bit better so that deer don't see them. So we don't know exactly what the strategies are there. Maybe those endemic species are, you know, locally adapted to a specific soil type or, you know, we, we don't know. There's a lot of microhabitat variability <laughs> that we could not address in, in this study. And so that would be my next area to look at. So that's kind of where I where I finished my dissertation with Trillium and ants. <laughs> wow. And questions i still have but <laughs> <laughs> oh that is amazing and like thank you for answering a long-standing question in my own head is what the heck is the difference or advantage or disadvantage of pedicillate versus sessile and i think i'm really biased towards enjoying the sessile trillions because of the observation that you just had there is that i just don't get to see them as often or at least you know growing up they were not a common group uh but Wow, the amount of natural history informing deep, intense theoretical science here is is just a round of applause for that. Because, you know, going back to what we kind of talked about at the beginning, how much is still not known of these basic ecological interactions? And it's a lot of times because we just don't fund those go out and sit and watch for a while kind of work. Uh, I mean, amazing. <laughs> I can't say yeah. that enough. That is so cool. Thank you. Yeah, and I agree fully. I mean, I think funding goes to shiny advanced modeling or you know molecular techniques and of course that's so important i'm so for combining complicated technological scientific advancements with simple natural history and then of course tying it back to to management you know all of my work has language involving conservation mm. trillium many of those species are endangered or at risk or vulnerable due to habitat destruction or habitat loss or fragmentation or illegal poaching. I mean, trillium are so popular, you know, they do run the risk of, of people going out and grabbing them um, or medicinal use. You know, there's, there's thoughts that they 
traditionally had medicinal, you know, uses and things like that. So yeah, there's a lot of threats posed to these populations, especially the very endemic ones. Barrel hogs, they're a huge problem. Smokies too. Um, Huge issue. And, and they're, you know, I don't want to say they're, they're weak flowers or not, but they, you know, they are, they are vulnerable to a lot of different potential risks. And so having some idea about like, okay, we know that these species might be able to occupy areas other than where they're endemic to. And that's exemplified case in case the, the Trillium book, you know, I don't know if you've ever read that. Do you have that book? No, I don't. Unfortunately. Yeah. So, so they are a married couple, I believe, and they um, essentially got every native species of Trillium and they planted them in a common garden up in, I think, Michigan. Huh. So they kind of proved, in, I mean, it's just one study. Of course, I, I can't say this you know, with certainty, but they, they, they provide some support for the idea that these plants can grow in soils and climate conditions other than what they're endemic to. Even those really, really endemic rare trillium that, you know, we find in the southern Appalachians, the Cecil ones. So to me, that means they're not necessarily micro habitat limited. Mm. They're limited in other ways. And so, you know, we could potentially translocate. That could be a strategy. And I know there's a lot of controversy surrounding that, but it's just good to know what the options are, you know? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So... And what's amazing, too, is like this is the kind of baseline data that allows you to start chipping away at these questions and and kind of narrowing down the pool of possibilities. What is it? You know what I mean? Because so rarely in ecology is there ever a single cause or reason or smoking gun for these sorts of uh, answers. And I mean, your work is just proof of that. So, okay, we have somewhat limited dispersal for some and not others. But then there's this case of like long distance occasional. What allows that? Could it just be a simple morphological explanation? And then, yeah, okay. so what about these microclimate things? Can we test that? So even just little hints and pieces like that allow you to, like you said, explore the options and try to understand what's going on here. And when you think about, you know, what's going on from a management perspective with these shrinking forest fragments and the loss of species, oftentimes it's the understory that's suffering the worst. And it, debate about assisted migration and reload translocation aside, you know, oftentimes these species go missing just because they can't get back there. It's not because something about the habitat has radically changed in a way that doesn't favor them anymore. It's just getting those seeds or propagules back to allow them to start over again. Exactly. Yes, you're exactly right. And and we don't know. I mean, we do know that, that ants are the primary dispersal mechanism for most of these species, and they do have significant impacts on um, population demography and things like that. So uh, they are very, very important, even though they're not the ones that are, you know, taking seeds 50 kilometers away or whatever. And yeah, if you stick a road in uh, the middle of a beautiful trillium habitat, like what effect does that have? Are the ants now no longer going to make it to the other side of the road to pick up the seeds and come back. You know, you don't know that again, you just, you need data Mm -hmm. on all of these little potential issues or questions in order to make informed decisions about how we protect habitat, how we manage landscape, you know, how, what we value in terms of ecosystem services. Um, you know, what value do Trillium have other than aesthetics? You know, do, do we actually care about them? And of course, I'm biased, but yes, but <laughs> you know, too. I mean, yeah, these are all really important questions. And I, I think the one thing that a lot of theoretical ecologists maybe overlook is that 
it's only in, in their, their circles that these are not questions that are being asked. Of course, we, we believe in the fundamental value of organisms and biodiversity. And I am very firmly in that camp that everything that we find in nature is valuable and important and we need to preserve and, and protect. But that's not how everybody else in the world feels. And there are choices that have to be made about what we value in terms of, you know, preserving land, in terms of um, translocating and, you know, th these kinds of things. And so if you can translate why a system is important in the context of the overall ecosystem, you have a better chance of, of protecting them uh, in terms of, you know, getting money to do so or convincing the public of their value. And so I think... Um, you know, you have to remove the bias that we have as scientists and botanists and nature lovers that everything's important. Like, yes, of course it is, but why? And how do things interconnect? And, you know, why are, why are ants important? Well, they move seeds around. Why are seeds important? You know, so, so I think that that's another reason that I'm so interested in species interactions, because you can garner more support for an argument that any given organism is important if you show that it is an integral part of a network of connected organisms and systems. And uh, yeah, I think that this is a really great little system to show that, you know, ants are important to Trillium. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. And I mean, you know, going back to sort of your management perspective on things, how you kind of got started in all of this. I mean, these are the conversations that matter. You have to learn how to talk to people about things that, you know, especially people that don't necessarily think or have the background that you do. It's okay. But if you don't know how to speak their language, so to speak, you're not going to get very far. And I mean, even within science, you have your own set of biases. I mean, what we value and what we kind of place on our pedestals changes from perspective to perspective. I mean, when you just said yellow jackets can disperse seeds, I'm like, oh, those can actually do something, huh? you know, not just exactly. worry the heck yeah. out of me on the field. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, you know, I, I have such a fondness for yellow jackets. Shockingly, somehow I never got stung by one, even oh. though that's <laughs> the ground literally right where I was sitting to do all of these field studies and I would watch them flying in and out of their nest and I never did see one pick up a seed that was my one thing I really wanted to see and it never happened but um but you know they were in the area they I saw them interact with other organisms um just going about their business and I have a fondness for them because of that but yeah they are known to disperse the seeds of trillium and you know relatively long distances especially if you consider ants as the primary dispersal mechanism you can get three times the distance out of a yellow jacket that can have very significant you know demographic effects on the uh, dispersal kernel of, of these species things like that but I also think you know Things like ground beetles are important because ground beetles will elizome rob. They will, you know, eat the elizome off of a seed before an ant can get to it, and they won't bother taking the seed anywhere. Other ants do that too. There are species of ants that elizome rob as well, and that drove me insane. Watching this happen in the field, I was like, oh my god, <laughs> there are ants here, but there's no dispersal happening. <laughs> and then other organisms that can interfere with the interaction are invasive ants. So the Asian needle ant is a huge potential problem but a major red flag for me uh because i had a site that i went to one year i went to the site three years in a row it's in tacoa georgia it's right on the border with georgia and i think south carolina anyways and it's a really cool area it had a, a really nice population of an endemic trillium there and um the first time i went there there were no needle ants that i was aware of or if they were there they were not there in large enough populations but they really made themselves noticed i guess to me so i was watching a phoenix move seeds around uh, for that first 
year. And then the second year I went, it was uh, like sort of half and half. Like, you know, half of the ants that I was seeing come to these seeds were not Aphenogaster ants. And I actually didn't know what they were. So I took some specimens back and we figured out that they were the Asian needle ants. Brachyponera chinensis is the, is the species name, I think. And I did notice that they would mess around with the seeds. They would elizome rob. They would like sort of carry seeds a little bit, but they were really, really bad dispersers. They were not doing what the Aphenogasters were doing uh, for the trillium seeds at all. And then the third year I went, there was almost no Aphenogasters to be seen. It was entirely Asian needle ants. And so I think that, you know, Aphenogaster are potentially at risk. I mean, they're one of the most ubiquitous genera of ants in eastern North America, but that doesn't mean that they can't be displaced by these invasive species that are not performing the same ecosystem services that they are. So, yeah, I think there's a lot going on, you know, with these systems that you could make an entire career out of studying this one interaction, you know. Yeah, and just be that person that you look through the the literature and you're like, whoa, holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and people do that. They get stuck on something and they're just like, I need to know more. And I totally understand that. <laughs> right. I mean, you just outlined a, a beautiful set of reasons why you can do that and why it can be, you know, very fruitful and exciting for one one lifetime of, of just obsessing. Because, I mean, even on your deathbed, you would go, ah, I never answered this, this, that and the other thing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think that's the mark of a, a good scientist or science well done is that it opens the door to other questions you know it it might close one tiny door answer one small question or one small piece of a question but you're never gonna run out of questions and if you keep that sort of curiosity and the feeling that we just don't know what's going on in mind i think never run out of things to ask yes it's exciting that's why there's different fields and career choices for everyone but (laughs) yes that's <laughs> in the context of sort of the natural history and observation component of your your field work, I would be remiss if I did not challenge you a little bit more uh, before I let you go today to think about all the trillium you worked with and all the hours spent in the woods doing it. Is there any group? I'm not going to say favorite because that's just I'm realizing too much of an unfair question. But are there any species that really stand out to you or kind of left a mark on you more than others, whether that be because of some observation you made or just, you know, this is a charming plant? <laughs> Yeah, there are. Um, so there's two. Trillium KPI, which is flower. It's on a pedestal, but it sort of sticks out underneath the, the bracts or the leaves. And so if you look straight down on that, you see the three leaves, and you don't necessarily see the flower until you look underneath. And then you see this gorgeous pink, beautiful flower. I mean, they are so pretty. And they're small for Tidisplit species. They're you know, a lot of times species can get really big and like umbrella-like almost. Um, these guys are very dainty. They're very little. They're different taxonomically than a lot of the other Pidislip species. I just have such fondness for them. And I was so pleased this summer or this, you know, really just a few weeks ago. Uh, I moved to Georgia last year to start my postdoc and I hadn't gone out spring yet in Georgia. And I went to a, like a nature park near where I live. And the trail was full of trillium KPI. Ah, nice. So happy. I was like, oh, I'm meant to be here. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. And so those guys I love, and they're also very attractive to ants. Like out of all the species I looked at, they chemically were very different. Um, ants really liked them. Yeah, so those guys were awesome. And then I also really like trillium discolor, which is a sessile species. It's endemic, uh, but it's very prolific where it's found. So it blankets <laughs> the floor. It, 
creates those beautiful carpets of, of trillium that you sometimes think about, especially with sessile species, because they are lower to the ground. And so they kind of exclude other plants from growing hmm. in and amongst them whilst, you know, while they're out, they're ephemeral, so they're not out for very long. But they're not that big either, but the modeling of the leaves is beautiful and the flowers are these like little, small, pale yellow. They almost look like little candles glowing on the ground. Yeah. Um, and they smell like sugar cookies. Like they're <laughs> so, like they smell so nice. It's, it feels like you're in like a fairy tale when you're, when you're you know, hanging out with them. Um, yeah. So every time I got you know, overwhelmed by school or work or whatever, I would think about, well, what am I actually doing? I'm literally out in the middle of these beautiful, like, fantastical landscapes with these flowers that are so rare. And like, I'm in the only place in the world that they're found. And that's so cool. So yeah, you, you know, it's helpful to remember it's a privilege to do what we do. Um, Certainly. And then it's also a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the component of loving it helps, but uh, certainly that is awesome. Two amazing species of Trillium. And I'm glad it wasn't too hard of a question to ask. I mean, you never know, but great reasons to love them. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, with that in mind, if people want to find out more about this research and keep tabs on what you're doing as you move forward with your career, uh, where do you recommend they go looking? Yeah, so I would say the best place would be my website. It's chelsea.nicolemiller.com. Um, and it has sort of everything to do with my research and where, uh, you know, what my, my journey is as a scientist. Um, I, I put updates on there fairly regularly. I keep my CV updated. So it's all got all my latest publications and I do little featured research blurbs. So, you know, whatever I've gotten published recently or whatever I'm working on currently there'll be a little blip about that. And I've got links to other websites that are affiliated with with what I do. So my my postdoc lab, which is the Forest Entomology Lab in the Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources at UGA. And I'm loving what I'm doing there. I it's a it's a different world, but I'm still studying <laughs> insect plant interactions. I'm looking at the effects of Hurricane Michael on the populations of wood borer beetles in pine plantations wow. in Florida. So again, more management focused, uh, but I'm trying to keep the ecology alive. I'm trying to keep the, uh, you know, the basic science there. Um, so there's, there's information about that. And then I'm on ResearchGate. I'm on Google Scholar. I think that's mostly it. Yeah. Well, if yeah. you think of anything, just send it to me and I'll put it in the show notes with all the others to save people the trouble of trying to remember all that. But thank you yeah. so yeah, much. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you my Twitter handle too. I'm fairly um, active on Twitter. Perfect. Well, yeah. Dr. Miller, amazing work. Fascinating stuff. Uh, really important data points for species that are super charismatic, but somehow disproportionately uh, mysterious. Uh, but yes, yeah. thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it. And I uh, wish you all the best in the future and keep in touch. I mean, it sounds like uh, all the future work coming out is going to be equally as interesting. So stay stay in touch. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Well, hang in there, stay healthy and uh, happy botanizing. Thank you. You too. Cheers. Bye. All right. Pretty remarkable research, wouldn't you say? A lot of food for thought in there when it comes to explaining species diversity and distributions. And who knew that ants and seed dispersal could have such a large impact? I thank Dr. Miller for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And of course, you can find all of the relevant show notes for this episode, as well as every other episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. If you're enjoying the show and you want to make sure it has a future and can continue to happen for free, 
please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. With a little bit of financial support each month, all of my wonderful patrons are helping keep this show up and running. There's a lot of great kickbacks over there, including access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month, as well as producer credits. For instance, I have a shout out to a bunch of new producers on this show. A big thank you goes to Jeffrey, Allie, Danielle, Lauren, and Felicidad. Thank you to all of them for signing up at the producer credit level. They're making the maximum impact on the show that you can make over at Patreon, and this show would be nothing without them and all of the other wonderful supportive patrons that support the show each and every month. We also have lots of merch for sale. Just check out the apparel section over at indefensiveplants.com. And I have a book out entitled In Defense of Plants and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. And it's available online wherever books are sold. There's also audiobook and ebook versions for you as well. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. But until next time, get outside, stay healthy, and be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.